Welcome everyone, this is Illiterate, my name is Evan. My name is Taylor, I read a play this week. I watched a movie. This week we are covering Amazon's One Night in Miami. The wonderful film directed by Regina King. You might be familiar with her as the star of HBO's Watchmen. This is her directorial debut, a feature film, a fictional account of one incredible night where icons Muhammad Ali, Malcolm X, Sam Cooke, and Jim Brown gather discussing their roles in the civil rights movement. So it it contrives this night gathered together in the wake of Muhammad Ali winning his championship. And so this is them kind of like in the hotel room before they're about to go party. And it's very odd, Evan was telling me beforehand, that in all the press for it, it's a bit conflicting as whether or not, because it says it's a fictional account, but then it says it actually happened, so... Yeah, and, 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 and I said it, I, you know, I, when I did the, those synopsis just now, I'm like, and a, f- a fictional account of one incredible night, and that's it. And, and a lot of the advertisements and everything, they make you feel like, oh, you don't, you don't know the real history here, and the film is presented like that. So let's get that out on the table immediately. Were all these people there that night, yeah. Taylor? So this, this was, as you said, the challenge from Muhammad Ali, then Cassius Clay, against Sonny Liston for the heavyweight title. He won. He was 22 years old this night, February 25th, 1964. He invited his friends, Malcolm X, who was 38, friend, minister, activist, and Sam Cooke, who was 30 years old, who was the gospel-turned-pop singer, record label owner. They were there to cheer him on. Jim Brown was also there at age 28, was the NFL running back, and he was providing commentary as part of the broadcast team via the radio. So they were all there for that event. They did all go back to Malcolm X's hotel room. So let me just go through kind of what Mm. was true and wasn't true. And if you've seen the film. And that's why I was confused, because all these synopses say a fictional account of One Incredible (laughs) Night, which makes me go like, oh, so they just put all these like civil rights icons in the same room for a play. But it's really is amazing (laughs) that they for sure were all there. Like it makes sense for them to all be alone, especially if they're like got roles. He's he's helping commentate and those kinds of things because it felt like college boys that don't have girlfriends like going you know before <laughs> right. they're about to go out on Friday night and then like somebody gets to real and like it, and mm-hmm. it goes on for a little too long and maybe some things come out <laughs> right. um, that's yeah, really what it all felt there. like so that really yeah 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 <laughs> so the reason it's sort of lost to the fabric of history and where the fictional part of it comes in is nobody knows what they talked about but they do know that they did go back to the right. hotel room and then they left but that is what is fictional and entirely made up because who knows so that's the that's the theorizing yeah well, and that's the fun of it well what 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 could they have talked about <laughs> right there are some <laughs> snippets you know. so according to jim brown's biography he was itching to get to this after party at the hotel that sam cook was staying at and mm-hmm. ali wanted to talk to him he said quote at a little black hotel so ali encouraged jim brown to come with him and then in one of ali's biographies it was said that his team was attempting to put together a party but muhammad ali and malcolm x went to a soda fountain to celebrate and then they end back up at Malcolm X's hotel room. So they all end up there. And this place is the Hampton House Hotel, which historically it's away from Miami Beach's segregated venues. So this was Mm. the thing at the time. I looked up a little bit more into the Hampton House. I don't know if the movie does much in terms of explaining the the conceit of the thing. Yeah. So it was opened in 61. It's actually in the Green Book, that famous thing that we talked about in our Lovecraft Country episode. 
because all these black performers and artists and everyone else could be in Miami Beach, but there were no hotels for them there. So this is further. It was fascinating, out. and there, and it comes up in the film, and you start to realize here is that you got these guys with this, what you seemingly immense power. Throwing their weight around in the room, drawing lines in the sand, talking about what they do, you know, a little bit of a, of a, of a contest. And mm-hmm. so then it comes out in the middle of it. None of them can book their own hotel rooms. Right. It has to be some business white man that does it. Well, and, that was and, the whole thing. And that, that was yeah, cutting the- through, through all the BS. Uh, it mm-hmm. was a cutting reveal in the middle of it because one thing this movie does precisely well is really reduce it down to humanizing moments. Each one of these guys, yes, they're monoliths. <laughs> almost this humanize it to what are they worried about in the moment this day what's around them uh so it, it was really it was really fascinating to see how conversations grow like that and start mm-hmm. to get lofty and then how it can be cut down by one remark yeah and i think there's a situation in these sort of prologue where jim brown is meeting an old i don't know if he's an old coach or somebody involved with football and he yes. gives him this very cut. That is in his biography. So that they're, is based they're having on this amazing conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're from the same place. This guy's telling him, like, I tell people that I'm from the same place. You're from this place. It's amazing. I will do anything for you. And you see that, like, wash over him. It feels like he feels part of this family. You feel that in the moment. And then the next, the very next beat is he's not allowed in the house because he's black. And that is something that, like I said, is in his biography that is based on something that happened. None of this sort of preview stuff is in the play version, which we'll get to that. But the play is much more like Ma Rainey's where it's all in one room because it's a play. And that's the great thing about theater versus film is you can have it. But I think the film, from what I have seen, and you can comment on this, does a an admirable job of giving you all the context and the cutaways and the feel of the intimacy between the people. Yeah. So this hotel that they end up going to closed sometime in the 70s and then was abandoned, this shell of a thing set for demolition, mm-hmm. but was uh, bought and restored by this wonderful lady, Dr. Pinkney, and she restored it, and now it's up and running. It was restored in 2015. No it's now a museum cultural center, and they have restored some of the rooms because Martin Luther King Jr. was there. Sammy Davis Jr., anybody that was anybody, if they were in Miami Beach, they were staying at this hotel. So what's true of this thing? Only one line that they know about, because it wasn't just these four guys, from what I could tell, from Muhammad Ali's photographer friend, Howard Bingham, who was also one of his biographers. Mm -hmm. He was there that night, along with several Nation of Islam members affiliated with Malcolm X. The only thing that was reported was that Malcolm allegedly asked Jim Brown, the football star, don't you think it's time for this young man to stop spouting off and get serious in relation (laughs) to Muhammad Ali? But that's Mm -hmm. really the only thing we know that perhaps he said. And it is- This is interesting uh, because it gives you a bit of a window, uh, especially on Muhammad Ali and his name change from Cassius Clay to, to Muhammad Ali. And this film mm-hmm. start, starts to pose exactly why and when that happened, which was really was it was really a uh, revelatory because I've not I mean, I'm, I know that he joined the Nation of Islam, but I did not know the motions of it. And I certainly never gave it reverence for the weight of that decision. And so to have the whole night being about. You know, he's just made the commitment to Malcolm X and nobody even in this room knows it until it spills out 
amongst them. Mm-hmm. And these are the first people that know this and batting that idea back and forth between people like Sam Cooke, who are the more business minded, the art, you know, trying to play the game as it is. And then you have uh, Malcolm X on the other side going, well, you've got to be a weapon for the cause. Uh, yeah. and, and seeing that ball get tossed back and forth with uh, Muhammad Ali and Jim Brown in the middle. Right. Because definitely what happens in this is lost to time and memory, but it would not have been noted at all, except for, like you said, the very next day, Cassius Clay livens up a press conference saying he's converted to the Nation of Islam. And then shortly after, he says his name change. And much of the much of the drama of the film is that coming out, nobody knowing, is that a good idea that these guys are kind of de- throwing that idea around? And then uh, you know, a lot of the movie comes around and first time they're going to be seen now before the party. Muhammad Ali wants Malcolm X to come out to the press with him that are waiting outside, which is a huge statement then leading to the next day. Right, because, so Kemp Powers, the author, he was saying, on the night, Jim Brown and Sam Cooke were arguably more famous and powerful than Cassius Clay and Malcolm X. And that's crazy to contextualize, too, but I think the movie does as good of a job as you possibly can of depicting a guy that has to be in that attitude of the the greatest ever even before he is, but we all know him as the greatest (laughs) ever because it's, you know, (laughs) it's it's, it's 50, 60 years later. Mm-hmm. 70 years ago. Oh, and a lot of the nation, yeah, a lot of the nation didn't like Malcolm X in his activist position. So here's obviously, and even Kemp Powers says in this, he's like, when he was writing this, he wants to show kind of a personal, intimate moment. And he did tons of research. But if you do want to know an exhaustive biography of each of these incredible people, that you can find it easily online. Like he even says that. So it's not, I can, and I can't go into everything that they right. are and done, but just in terms of what the film shows and what I thought was relevant to that night. Malcolm X had grown disillusioned with the movement after learning that the leader of the Nation of Islam, Elijah Muhammad, had fathered several children out of wedlock. He made some unfavorable comments about JFK's assassination that got him banned from speaking on the part of the Nation of Islam. And so he is secretly and then publicly removing himself from the nation of Islam at the same time as Muhammad Ali is joining it. So in real life, shortly after this, their relationship falters. Muhammad Ali said, quote, turning my back on Malcolm was one of the mistakes I regret most in life. And then, of course, with Malcolm X, after months of being trailed by the nation of Islam, the police, the FBI, he was ambushed by gunmen during a speaking appearance and who his killers were and everything is still debated. But that, I believe, is also maybe brought up in the film as kind of like, this is a sobering thing. A year after this meeting, he gets assassinated. Exactly. The, the, no. the movie ends with this you know, air of it, it was influential in kind of helping these guys make their next steps in their careers and in, mm-hmm. and in the movement. And then it shows, it catches up with Malcolm X as the violence is really coming to his doorstep. And you see that. And that did happen where his house got firebombed. That was also something that happened. Which I had no, I mean, it was riveting to to see that take place. And then uh, the film ends with a quote from him about becoming a martyr. Mm -hmm. Notes he was, uh, he was murdered two days later after saying that. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the other person that also died shortly after, which is true to history, is Sam Cooke, mm. died in December of 64 after being shot by a motel manager during oh a God. very little understood dispute. And there was actually a documentary about his death that came out, I think, 
2019 or 2020. It's called The Two Killings of Sam Cooke. It's on Netflix. Oh, yes. Okay. Okay. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, because it's all very uh, questionable and lost to history and everybody that was involved is dead now. So it's hard to even make sense of it. But that that is another sort of contentious two of the four people that were in this night in Miami die under mysterious and anonymous circumstances within a year. Um, What the film does fudge in terms of the timeline and in terms of what's going on with Sam Cooke, and this is the biggest conflict between the two is Malcolm X and Sam Cooke and his artistic pursuits versus more activist mentality. The big question is Sam Cooke doing enough with his music to speak to the African-American experience and using his voice for civil rights purposes, I suppose. Malcolm X sums it up as pandering, mm-hmm. uh, which is is really interesting. I think much of the, the thesis of the film is talking about what you do uh, at a crossroads when you have opportunity, especially coming from the black community. I mean, um, the, the pressure to give back and help uh, is immense, but everybody has a choice there. And so this is, this is about Muhammad Ali ascending and being at that crossroads. So you have Malcolm X there on the activist side, pulling, saying, you've got to be a tool, a weapon for the cause. And then you have Sam Cooke on the other side saying, but this is the way the world works, and there is a way to win at their game. And there, and and Malcolm X is saying that those are diametrically opposed to a degree. And 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 I think what yeah, this yeah. film does well is humanize Malcolm X in a way that I had not seen, in a way that that shows him as a. He goes out of his way to say that he does that he genuinely cares about the people in this room, and he goes out of his way to keep those relationships because he cares about them. And that that goes down to a deeper motivation in that he knows that people just like him and these people in this room and black people everywhere are dying every day. And so it's it's a one to one relation for him. And he sees no difference uh, and the cause and the, the prescience that people are dying every day is just as real down the street as it is outside their doors. It is in the room. It, it, it is showing you what his ideals are, what he what he believes about this movement, and what these guys have the opportunity to be for the black community. But it's related down to these are his friends and he cares deeply about them. And it might be one of them that is shot dead in the street tomorrow. Mm-hmm. It might be one of their mothers that is shot, it might be one of their friends. It could be any one of them. And they, that just because they're at the crossroads of this opportunity does not elevate them past or beyond the community. I thought it was mm-hmm. really eloquently put. I don't even know where the words I'm saying right now are coming from because these this is not language from the film, but this is definitely the idea that it, that it that was speaking to me. And it's interesting that Malcolm X is the oldest, like he's 38 and Muhammad Ali is 22. Right. So there is kind of a, hey, you guys are coming up here. Sam Cooke is 30. So here's what here's what I've seen and learned and, and here's your opportunities. But what the what the film and the play, well, I think the play actually doesn't really address it in the same way, but the film fudges more is the timeline because in the film, Sam Cooke has not even considered doing some sort of a protest song and Malcolm X throws Bob Dylan's blowing in the wind as this like, hey, right. look, here's this white guy who's doing more than you are. And that is fabricated because there was an experience that happened that October when Sam Cooke and his entourage were turned away from a whites-only holiday inn in Louisiana. Mm. 
even though they had reservations for it. And that is said to have directly triggered him to write a change is going to come. And he recorded the song in January and was on television, which that recording is lost before this night even happened. So they shift that after for the conceit of the movie and the fact that this conversation sort of compelled him to do that. And that is not. Yes, the film is saying that correct. this night and these conversations in this room kind of spur these next moves for each of them. That's so interesting to find out that uh, change is going to come was was written and performed, you know, before the night happened. Uh, right. But but it is but close and, but you have to look at it from logically right. And but I look at it from from a from a filmmaking standpoint. That's it's these things are a mosaic. And you know, to say what this film is saying, and, and it's a very valid thing to discuss here about what this opportunity and these crossroads mean as a screenwriter, um, looking at it going like, well, you know, OK, he, he performed the song a few months before this night happened. But you have all the other pieces in place. Does it not make sense? And you start to see why why these decisions are made. Uh, and and yeah. how eventually the, the that argument about the greater good of the of the lie here illustrates the point. That's how this is really done. I think this is a really succinct uh, example of that kind of thing. It's like, well, it doesn't really line up, but it is so close, and all the other stuff is real. That the, yeah. to 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 make that shift, you know, I, I hesitate to paint it as like, well, it it it's fu-, you know, like yes, it's fudging it, but it it is still it it's still applicable. It's still valid in in the thematics there. And then similarly with Jim Brown, he walks away from football in 66 a year later. Like he had already done acting for a couple of years. It was on the set of The Dirty Dozen that he decides I'm not doing football anymore. But you could, like you said, you could draw inspiration from the fact that this night historically did occur. And oh, perhaps there is. It's a fun, it's a fun pontification moment. Oh, Sam Cooke yeah. had just done this. In the next two or three years, all this happens between these two people. The next day, Muhammad Ali is a superstar around the world. This is what this night is about, is this galvanization, mm-hmm. the ascension, um, yeah. that that moment before it, it happened, which is, was really, I mean, that was, that was part of the magicism for me is to demystify and, and go up the, uh, the roller coaster with Muhammad Ali and try to mm-hmm. and put some context there for what, what that meant, when it, what that felt like when it was happening. And I think the big through line tension is that of because Sam Cooke is the primary shift here in the story of the film of between activist and artist. Mm-hmm. And so I thought it would be good to discuss who directed this and then who wrote this Kemp Powers and where his story, as we often find with artists, fits into, well, what are they trying to say with this? Even though the Sam right. Cooke thing is a little bit murky, it all historically is a little bit murky what happened here i'll tell you there's more real than i thought there would be <laughs> <laughs> right yeah yeah there's exactly. so much more real than um, i thought. I was like well no way they were all there you know like <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah yeah this was the first feature as you said directed by regina king was the first film selected in venice film festival's history by an african-american woman director wow. she said in an interview that she intended to focus on a love story for her first directorial work she had directed television quite a bit, but not Hmm. yet film. And so she wanted to do a love story, like a romance, more Titanic type thing. Interesting. But the script came around, this play, and she said, I saw every black man that I know and love in these men, and I knew that it was my job to bring it to life. Mm. More of a bromance than a romance, but she wanted to do it justice. And then in terms of the filmic quality, because it is hard to do a play 
theater is different. You have one chance to influence an audience, you know, the dialogue, the staging, it's all very different. But in terms of the stylings, and we had, I think we had talked about this in another episode, but she was, she said she was inspired by the paintings of Jacob Lawrence, who has done dynamic cubism, the shapes and colors of Harlem. He did that great migration series of paintings. I think it's 60 something paintings where he worked in the Harlem Renaissance and beyond these cubist displays of African-American life as it relates to the great migration. Right. But very bright colors, very evocative, very stylized. So that was what she wanted to bring to it. And not just when you do a period piece to do it more muted and down to earth. It was very vibrant. I mean, it very, very yeah, vibrant. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking about the, uh, the opening scene is that, uh, I think Wembley Stadium uh, at a, at a fight of uh, Cassius Clay's, and then we follow him. Then I think the next scene is at the hotel that they're out, and and it's mirrored with the opening scenes very very red. The bo- the boxing gloves pop. Um, feels like a yeah. like an old Coke photograph almost. You know, like an old <laughs> ad from yeah. back then. Very 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 vibrant. It's not faded at all, and so it's really trying to bring that history into the foreground, make it feel real mm-hmm. and textured and there uh, and then it's it's the next the very next scene is all yellow all of the pool towels are just screaming yellow off it, and it just and it just yeah. vibes 60s it was beautiful it was very immediate that of what of what the colors uh meant there that this wasn't you know it, like you said that kind of uh, uh, that general like sepia washed out old antiquated <laughs> none of that here it's it this is a, a vibrant 60s so I, I will post a link to some of that artwork that she said she was inspired by, and you'll surely see the resemblance. Yeah. And then in terms of the acting, she said some actors with bigger names were interested because that's another piece of this is a lot of these folks are more up and coming. I mean, yeah. a lot of new, a lot of, a lot of new yeah. uh, young blood here. I don't know where like where yeah. Eli Gorey came from, who played Muhammad Ali. I've no, mm-hmm. I don't recognize him for much of anything. Yeah, uh, but I see he has a long career here. I mean, he's been working steadily since the 2006. He's fantastic. Uh, there's a lot of uh, Ali material out there. He brought a really really fun energy to it, uh, mm-hmm. and 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 really some small anachronisms, small mannerisms that I've seen in old documentary footage and stuff like that. That I was really really delighted to see that he worked into his performance here. Um, well, and as you said before, this is not a biopic of any of these people. It's a slice of life of one night in the moment, and exactly. they're smaller. Uh, it, it's it, it 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 rings like if you remember our Selma episodes. Like that is not a MLK biopic. His whole life. That is a very particular moment in the civil rights movement, and it talks about what was going on with MLK as that was happening. Uh, so this is very very similar in that sense of like this is not a, a profile on each of these guys and everything they did and everything they meant and how they died and all that. No, it's this is very very much what was on these guys' minds at this time. And what can they talk about? What would they talk Not about? Exactly. With a publisher. Yeah, yeah. How exactly. fun. <laughs> How fun. Exactly. So she, uh, Regina King was saying that there were some bigger names interested in the roles, but they weren't interested in auditioning. And she said, I'm not going to see anyone that isn't going to audition. I don't care. Oh, yeah. Who, I mean, she didn't right. say who it was, but that's how we get these folks who are in the role. And she was like, this is something her picking the project. She's like, I would have wanted to do this. But right. I'm not a man, so, so I can't. What I saw, and speak, you know, it, a lot goes into these things. But on on her behalf, what I saw, and it makes so much sense to me. Being, a, I mean, she's a, 
amazing actress. Um, so mm. to hear that she had helmed something like this was really exciting. But what I didn't expect and what I think is just so uh, wonderful about her direction is I can see her curiosity on these subjects and on these people. As an actor, I'm feeling I'm f- you know I'm feeling her tendency to get to know these people. It's naturally helping her, and when a close up works, uh, when a wide works, what does that say? I think she's mm-hmm. really got just all of the uh, touchstones here. She's just got it on her on her fingertips here. This uh, this whole thing feels so natural, so motivated, and, it, and to hear it in those words that mm-hmm. you just said is like she saw every black man she's ever known. Don't you feel yeah. the love in that statement? You know, <laughs> yeah. and I and I'm like that. That's what the movie feels like. Every time you get up close to one of these guys, you feel that this that exact sense of getting to know them a little bit better. And speaking to her curiosity, Kemp Powers was talking about her influence as a woman directing this script about four black men. Mm-hmm. He was saying that there was a conversation in the script between Malcolm and his young daughter in the film that was not in the script originally. Mm. She. Through her network of women, he says, re- reached out to Malcolm's oldest daughter to learn more about him, oh, wow. her curiosity. And then she, uh, Malcolm's oldest daughter told her about her, how her father used to leave hidden notes in books and then send them out on scavenger hunts. And she told Kemp Powers, oh. hey, you should write that in. And so he did. And he said that was a discovery that he genuinely believes would not have been made with a male director. Oh, that's because gorgeous. A male director probably would not have reached out to his oldest daughter and got, or been able to procure that information through the network that she has and on, who she is. On that note, just to illustrate something about how this movie moves and to talk about its, uh, you know, moving from a play to a film, this exact thing where he has this phone call with his daughter is through a, a series of events. And this is exactly where I think this movie really succeeds in ways that maybe others of its genre and type don't is that from the play, I'm sure that it's, you know, that he can't go out and answer a phone, you know, get on the telephone in the street while they have one set right there. The conversation's happening in the hotel room. So we get already set up that Malcolm X is playing with this camera before we ever get to the hotel room. He's got this new toy and he's got it with him. Um, So we get to the hotel room. Everybody's showing up and they're getting into their conversation. And then Malcolm X stops, realizes oh my God, I left my camera in the car. My brand new camera is out in the car. There's wonderful things going on in the background, but you give a chance for these characters to discuss different things on their own without Malcolm X. That's what, in this way, Malcolm X goes out to his car. It's there he sees Mm -hmm. the telephone and he realizes he needs to call his kids. It's a great time to call his kids. I can take 10, 15, 20 minutes and do this. The guys are all right in the hotel room. And so it leads into this amazing scene. And to hear that it's absolutely true, that's absolutely authentic, not that it happened that night, but what happens is absolutely authentic is incredible because it, it feels naturally motivated, every piece of that. And so that I just wanted to highlight that as one way that this mm-hmm. movie, time and time again, makes these decisions. It succeeds at breaking out of that stage room. Well, what's beautiful about that too is let's talk about, so it was the screenplay is by Kemp Powers who also wrote the play, which we find also is difficult because they're completely different mediums and ways (laughs) of getting across information. And also this is his first feature screenplay. Like Regina King was like, I can't believe this, that this is the first time he's written. He wrote for television, was involved in Star Trek Discovery, and then we'll also get into how he was involved in Soul, which also came out on the exact same day that this came out. No, we are uh, in, 20, <laughs> in 2020, but she just couldn't believe it. So he tore down completely, like you said, his 85-minute, one-room, one-act play, which I read, and reassembles it into an actual film. 
and I love, more. I love being not being precious with it and going, okay, this isn't applicable. I need to read this a new mosaic. It's a, it fits in a new frame. Now I'm using a lot of these same pieces, right. but I got to manufacture some new ones. I got to drudge up some new ones. Yeah. It's just a right to move from writing the book, writing the screenplay and it actually getting made. I mean, it's one God, the astronomical. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, okay. Yeah. Kent Powers chopped it up adds the burdens and the fallout and the backstories and cutting away. And the I found the first line of the play actually turns up at around the 40-minute mark of the script. Wow. So it really added more to give us a sense of things. I love um, that. I absolutely love that. Yeah. The play was produced and came out in Los Angeles in 2013, won three LA Drama Critics Circle Awards, four NAACP Theater Awards, was in London in 2016, and was the first dramatic portrayal of Muhammad Ali after his death, because oh, he died wow. in 2016, and yeah. his family gave their blessing to this interpretation of him. Oh, wow. Um, so I wanted to kind of end our discussion today talking about Kemp Power's story, because more often than not, we find what somebody's writing about who they are is very much the same. Right. And I didn't know anything about him at all, and it seems like, God... Two of the biggest movies came out the same day in 2020, Soul. December 25th. He wrote both, you know, them. Yeah. yeah my God. Um, and what it, what, how, how does that fit into him and, and his connection to the material? Because he had no, you know, film, he had some TV, but no film credentials before 2018 when suddenly he was summoned by Pixar to give notes on a secret work. And he watched, he said there was a ton of NDAs, watched this early storyboard footage on the plane over. And that was what ended up becoming Soul. My God. Which he ended up also becoming the co-director of because he inputted wow. so much into the production. They said, well, we can't just have him be co-write. He's also a co-director on wow. this. Let's be real. Oh, my God. The journey of his life begins in this crazy tragedy, which nobody knew about for so long. So this was April of 1988. He's 14 years old, and he brings two friends of his home. These are not their names, but one of them was named Henry, and his mom was at work. He showed them a revolver that she kept in the armoire and mimed shooting at his friend and actually shot him. Oh, my God. And he died there on the scene, and his parents declined to press charges, and Kent Powers was just sentenced to a year of counseling, and his criminal record was then erased at 16 because he's a minor, and he didn't tell anybody about it. Nobody knew about it, moved on to college, but this haunts him and becomes yeah. such a big part of who he is for the rest of his life. He even wrote, he used to wrote comics in college. There was one that starred a superhero who could activate his powers only by ending a life. This oh is gosh. clearly in his consciousness. He ends up going to journalism school to be a journalist, still tells no one. And that's what I think is so interesting too. So in terms of one night in Miami, like we talked about, it's about choices, making a change, crossroads. crossroads. Where does that fit in? He eventually writes, and I skimmed and read some of this. There's a memoir that he wrote about his life in this. It's called The Shooting, and it came out mm-hmm. in 2004. And the reason he decided to write this then was because he's from New York. There was a 26-year-old man in 2000 in New York City who was killed by police during a drug dealing sting operation yeah. where they would pretend to be a drug dealer. And then if somebody got involved, they would try and arrest them. This guy got shot and killed. And Rudy Giuliani said that he was no altar boy, which is insinuating without saying it, that he had his fate coming to him. Good Lord. Which was ironic because, in fact, he was an altar boy. Oh, my God. Oh my God. <laughs> this man, this 26-year-old sure man. not true. <laughs> right. Um, go slander. 
But this guy, this guy, the reason he said it that way, because this guy, his name was Doris Mond was his last name. He had a robbery charge at age 13 and then it was expunged at 16. But all of that was dismissed in the context of this. And it's like, unless you were in New York and knew about this, nobody's heard about this person. And so Kemp Powers is like, that's me, (laughs) you know, like who's like, this is, how did I get past this? Right. How did, Uh, yeah, my God. I do any, I do anything now. And then I'm, am I going to be judged by the same standard, a totally unfair standard? So he wrote this, this memoir. And decides to, you know, he's slowly branching away from journalism into more creative personal writing. At this point, he stumbles upon this footnote in history. He's reading about one of his favorite people, Muhammad Ali, in the book Redemption Song. There's just a paragraph about this meeting of these four guys. And he was Mm -hmm. like, this is equivalent to the Black Justice League of America or Black Avengers. (laughs) It's crazy. Um, (laughs) But he wanted to write about it, so he starts tinkering around with a play version of it and moves away from the iconography and fame of it all and says, you know, it's about four friends one night and how pivotal decisions can happen in a single evening. Wow. And he still has his reporting career. His last position was at the front page news producer at Yahoo and then contract work for AOL, but he doesn't even have health insurance with them. So it's not really coming to bear his his career in journalism. The Miami play does come out. Like I said, it came out in 2013. It's progressing at this time being shown, but instead of enjoying his play being produced, he had this terrible allergic reaction to a a medicine and actually has this deadly syndrome that causes his muscle tissue to disintegrate and cause organ failure. So he's basically like writing notes to his kids in the hospital because he doesn't want them to know what's going on. And AOL, which he's just, like I said, doesn't have health insurance, doing contract work, says, oh, well, let us know when you're done. Meaning like, oh, we've got somebody to replace you if uh, you even do come back. Like, oh my he would God. not be missed. No one would know. This hits him so hard. So he re- he decides he's going to tell stories as a full-time artist. Wow. And from that, we have the observations of a black man, father of two, survivor of a traumatic childhood. Oh my God. Complex stories to millions of yes. homes. Pixar contacts him, like I said, his 12-week contract morphed into over a year of five times a week going out there, consulting on the casting, the set design, the editing, the music. Is, is it and known it's so how fascinating. Pixar found him? I couldn't find that information, yeah. no. That's how I, mean, I don't know that, where, yeah. It's yeah. like finding a golden ticket. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, and also because Soul is about the crossroads in your mid-40s and right. can you make a change and can you do this? And I just also saw in an interview with Kent Powers relating it now back to One Night in Miami and the Malcolm X and Sam Cooke relationship. He said the fight between Malcolm and Sam, that's his internal monologue on a regular basis. And he's like, if we're Mm. successful, people from the film watching it, they shouldn't come away feeling one person is right or wrong because the answer is who is right or wrong. That's situational because he said... There's some days where the best way I can do it is work within the system. And then there's other days where the system is broken and it needs to be torn down. There are days that call for us to be like Malcolm X and days that call for us to be like Sam Cooke. Mm. And he's like, in order to change, you need a lot of Malcolm X's and a lot of Sam Cooke's. And he just said in relation to his own life, and I thought this was the, the perfect end and really what hooked this whole research session for me. He said, I have two movies out right now that I wrote. And one of them is my Malcolm X and one of them is my Sam Cooke. This one, One Night in Miami, is an independent film, just his pure putting his voice out there. And Soul is a Disney Pixar film, 
and he's working in one of the biggest systems of all time. And he's like, I would like to think that both of them are effective in different ways, positive in different yeah, ways. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And he's saying my life and my art is an example of how you can do the two different things. And I just thought that was in- amazing that that, wow. <laughs> that that is who this came from. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I had no, I had no idea. I am, I'm absolutely gobsmacked. Um, yeah. What a, what an incredible journey. Mm-hmm. And now he's the biggest, you know, the yeah. biggest, uh, one of the biggest screenwriters from these two things. I feel so much of everything you've just said, just through the words of the, of the film. What a, what an exciting time that somebody like this has just now, and now he, you know, here he is ascending. Um, this is, uh, pretty incredible. Uh, thank you so much, Taylor. Thank you guys for yeah, listening you. out there. Really appreciate it. Uh, hit us up at Illiterate Pod on Instagram. Let us know what you're reading. Let us know what you're watching. Let us know. We might do an episode on it. You never know. We'll catch you next week. Thank you all.